Well, good evening. Let me first introduce myself to you. I'm, my name is Shukru Haniolu. I am the director of the program in Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. Uh, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome Professor Roy Mutahira back to Princeton, uh, who is Professor Mutahira is uh, currently uh, the Gurney Professor of Islamic History at Harvard University. Uh, and he is, he is not a stranger to Princeton. Uh, he taught at Princeton for almost two decades or 17 years, you know, to be more precise, uh, until, 18, until 1986. Uh, he came to Princeton as a young scholar and, and left, you know, uh, age, so. <laughs> much to our regret, uh, us uh, for Harvard uh, as one of the most eminent and brilliant historians of the Middle East. Uh, Professor uh, Mutahide uh, has a deep knowledge of all aspects of Islam and especially of Shiite Islam. So therefore, the perspective that we are going to be privileged to hear tonight is quite uh, exceptional. Uh, and uh, I don't think that Professor Mutahide needs uh, any, any introduction, but uh, again, uh, he is uh, one of the major scholars uh, in our field, in the field of uh, Middle Eastern history. Uh, his major work is on the pre-modern social and intellectual history of the Islamic Middle East. Uh, his two books, uh, Loyalty and Leadership in Early Islamic Society uh, and The Mantle of the Prophet are standard and classics classic, actually, books in our field. Uh, and he has recently published uh, a new book uh, entitled Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence. Uh, and uh, he is currently working on a comparison of Egyptian and uh, Iranian uh, Islamic modernist. So we are really privileged to have Professor Mutahira to speak to us on the leaders of Iraqi Shiites and uh, give this, uh, give the, the Walter E. Edge uh, lecture. So without further ado, Professor Mutahira. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, as uh, Professor Haniolu has uh, said, uh, I uh, taught here for a very long time. Uh, a friend who taught for almost as long, who now moved to Harvard, I asked him, are you still a Princeton person? And he said, I still wear orange and black underwear. I will not reveal what color underwear I wear, <laughs> but, but a part of me remains indelibly uh, mixed with Princeton. Um, the talk I'm giving tonight about uh, the leadership among the Shiites, uh, I think it's entitled, Who are the Shiite Leaders?, is um, a talk uh, which is a sliver of an article. So. Uh, I hope you're patient with me. It's not totally evolved. Um, I, the Encyclopedia of Najaf, Najaf, the city in southern Iraq that's so important in present events, is 20 volumes long. I can't claim to have read all 20 volumes. <laughs> I'm working very hard on reading a few of them now. And uh, necessarily, the work is incomplete. Uh, I think, however, uh, many people in this country, including many people in the government, had an impression that the north of Iraq is Kurds, the center of Iraq are Sunni Arabs, and the south of Iraq uh, is uh, uh, Arab Shiites. And that more or less explained it. But uh, very clearly, it does not explain it. If anyone was not aware of that before, it should be abundantly clear. Um, I will give begin with a small a history of Twelver Shiism as it's insofar as it concerns Iraq uh, and discuss some of the social patterns 
uh, uh, that uh, contribute to leadership among the Shiites, and then uh, discuss very, very recent events. I know that a great deal that I say uh, is extremely well known to people here who are in the room, who I see and who are high experts on these subjects, and I ask their indulgence if I repeat these things in perhaps a less accurate manner than they could say them. Um, Ali, uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, Imam Ali, as the Shiites, uh, Amir al-Mu'minin, as he's called by Shiites, actually the commander of the faithful, was murdered in, in Iraq in 661 and buried at the city of Najaf. This, therefore, became a shrine town. Um, and now it is a shrine town that is with a population of 600,000 people. So it's a very large town indeed. Not many years later, in 680, Hussein, son of Ali, grandson of the Prophet, was brutally murdered. Um, he had been invited by the people of Kufa, a city in, it was now a small city in Iraq, uh, but then a very important place, to come and uh, be their uh, leader. Um, the Kufans failed to come to his aid as he came, entered Iraq, and uh, he was, he and the immediate entourage around him were, were slaughtered. In self-reproach, the Kufans became, as they said, penitents, tawabun, and this penitential aspect of Shiism was born to some extent at this, after this event. Hussein was buried at Kerbala, similarly a town at present of 600,000 people and the other major shrine town in Iraq. For 12 Shiites, as the name implies, there are 12 imams or leaders. To have an imam who will interpret religion is, from the Shiite point of view, as to some extent is true perhaps for Catholics and a pope, a mercy from God since there should be on questions of religion some kind of infallible leader. This was a mercy of God. Uh, but for the Twelver Shiites, there was the puzzle that this line uh, seemed to disappear. The twelfth Imam in the line uh, uh, seemed to disappear from the world. Um, it, and as far as they were concerned, there was no way to be in touch with him. So they were left with a doctrine in which it was necessary to have an imam, and yet the actual imam was not uh, around. The event of his disappearance is placed in 941, when people said they, there was no way of contacting him. And it left Shiism in something of the dilemma faced by Jews in the absence of the Messiah. While there were elaborate theories about just government, a sultan al-adil, there was a strong quietist trend tendency in Shiite, Twelver Shiite thought. How, in fact, could one have godly government in the absence of this Messiah to appear later? Therefore, the best one could hope was just government, but never really godly government. The next great event influencing Shiism in Iraq is the conquest in 1055 of Baghdad by the family of uh, Turkish rulers called Saljuk, who were uh, uh, Sunnis and whose viziers strongly propagated the Sunni ideas. Two years after this, in 1057, the leading Shiite scholar uh, Atusi, called Sheikh Ta'ifa, among the Shiites, the leader of the group, meaning the, the, the group of Shiites, their own group, migrated from Baghdad to the shrine city of Najaf. Many people count this as the founding of the first Shiite madrasa. And indeed, in the time of Tusi, a fully developed Shiite theology and law system emerged. All later madrasas and Shiite leaders trace their lineage back to this uh, period and, in fact, uh, very largely to the figure of a Tusi. Now, 
it's important to realize that uh, Shiism, this is a very, uh, very brief version, but Shiism at this point absorbed a doctrine which disappeared among other Muslims, most other Muslims, which is called Mu'tazilism, which claimed, among other things, in the legal field, that everything that can be proven by the reason can be proven by law and vice versa. This remained a maxim inside of Shiite law and was to contribute to developments in the 19th and 20th century to which we will come. Tusi, uh, uh, Tusi was, of course, a, uh, a, a kind of leader from whom questions were asked and who gave answers, a kind of leader, leader that would be called among Sunnis a mufti, but among Shi'is, such figures developed different characteristics, partly because they came slowly to represent the absent imam, the messianic figure waited for at the end of time. The, the representatives of the highest members of the clergy, uh, uh, their, represents, their claim to represent, represent the twelfth imam meant, first of all, they had financial claims against the community. People paid them a religious tax yearly, and also gradually they developed a hierarchy of deference among them. The figure, the names you have heard so much since the Iranian Revolution, Ayatollah, Hojatul Islam, and all sorts of things, come from, in fact, this hierarchy of deference. In uh, the 1950s and 60s, jump way forward, <laughs> in the 1950s and 60s, Iraq had the largest communist party in the Arab world, perhaps the largest in the Middle East. And interestingly enough, this uh, communist party was drawn in great part from the Shiite, uh, uh, Shiites of Iraq. This was a direct challenge to Shiism. And a very important intellectual figure named Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, um, B-A-Q-I-R is his middle name, although the New York Times has decided it is B-A-K-R and there's no changing their minds about it. B-A-Q-I-R, Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, rose to this challenge. He had been born in the third uh, shrine town of Iraq, which I didn't really mention. It doesn't, it rank, it's a somewhat distant third. It doesn't rank. It's called Kazimain. Um, when I visited it in 1961, it was a, a short bus ride from Baghdad. Now it's just a suburb in, engulfed by Baghdad. Uh, he was born in Kazimain and in 1935, and was something of a child wonder. In his actually late teens or early twenties, he wrote a series of books. One of them is called Our Economy, Iktisaduna. Uh, this book had a large influence on developing Islamic economics. Now, I don't particularly admire Islamic economics, but nevertheless, it was an orig original attempt to try and answer um, the challenge of the Communist Party and to say Islam itself had an economic system which gave some kind of social justice. It's very strong on the social justice that the system delivers. He also wrote a book uh, called Our Philosophy. Interestingly enough, in this case, very much uh, 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 influenced by a Persian book by Mohammed Hossein Taba Tabai, the famous author of the great Quran commentary Al-Mizan, who wrote a book called ravesh realism in Persian, an attack really uh, on dialectical materialism. Uh, and this, with much change, was uh, reflected in the work in Arabic of Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr. He wrote a th third book, which is important, called Ususul Istikra, The Logical Bases of Induction, which was an urge for the introduction of the principles of induction into uh, Islamic legal thought. Again, a sort of mixed success, but a book that shows what a clever and uh, interesting person he was. Meanwhile, the Iraqi Revolution of 1958 
um, changed the situation of the Iraqi uh, Shiites. And the clandestine Shiite, Twelver Shiite party called the Dawa party was founded. The Dawa party wanted an Islamic Iraq, although what Islamicness consisted of was very unclear. In, 19, in the 1960s, the Iraqi government accepted that the very non-political Ayatollah Hakim was leader of the Shiites and that his protégés, such as Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr, should not be touched. In 1970, Hakim died, and the highest authority among the Shiites in Iraq, Al-Khoi, Abul Qasim Al-Khoi, succeeded him. He followed the highly non-political character of Iraqi Shiite leadership. I want to say something about these clerical families. In Iran, the same Twelver Shiites have far less ascriptive, that is, uh, far less uh, status by birth. In Iraq, they have far more. I think this may have something to do, there are exceptions in Iran, and I'm glad to, to discuss them, but I think it has something to do with the more tribal character of Iraqi society. Now, I say tribal, uh, one must understand that most of these tribes people are settled and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, they have elaborate kinship schemes that unite them, uh, say, throughout the village in which they're settled in, or even a larger unit than a single village, a small town, as we've seen in Tikrit, for example. Um, in the Shiite community, this more elaborate kinship structure meant that there was a general acceptance among the tribal unit or whatever subunit to recognize a certain family as having authority uh, among the Shiites. So um, we have families uh, that are, so to speak, sacred families. I, let me give two examples. I've been talking about the Sadr family. If any of you look at the 20 volumes Encyclopedia of Najaf, <laughs> you will find out that the Sadrs are descended from a scholar named Sadruddin al-Amili, an Lebanese uh, scholar who went from Lebanon to Iran in the 19th century, made his fortune as a, a, uh, a learned mullah in Iran, and then retired uh, to live in the region of the Iraqi shrines. Living in the Iraqi, near the Iraqi shrines or being buried near the Iraqi shrines is a traditional pious act. Uh, the famous Musa Sadr, who, the charismatic Shiite pre preacher in Lebanon, who was made by Gaddafi to disappear in 1978, um, is a, one member of this family which moved back to Iran, but the rest stayed in Iraq. And in fact, uh, um, the Sadrs of Iraq have a strongly Arab identity. Um, the, uh, there's Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr I mentioned before, um, uh, 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 was leader of the family during his lifetime, and we'll see another Sadr II and Sadr III emerge. Another example is the Hakim family. I just mentioned how Mohsen al-Hakim uh, died in 1970. His family, nevertheless, had played and continued to play a role as a semi-sacred family among Iraqis. They were descended from a doctor to the Persian shahs. Hakim is a frequent word for doctor who migrated to Najaf, where he died in 632. So this is really in the early 17th century. Uh, of this family, uh, most have stayed in Iran, though not uh, in Iraq, though not all. And Saddam killed 70, I mean, tw 27 members of the family. Uh, in fact, the only really major member of the family still living is Abdulaziz al-Hakim. Anyway, having described the system of, of uh, ascriptive status, or whatever one wants to call it, one understands immediately 
some, the, the difference in the Iraqi situation. In 1977, the Ba'athists decided on a confrontation with the Shiite ulama. There was a yearly procession from Najaf to Karbala that commemorates the martyrdom, as Shiites understand it, of Hussein. The security forces of the, the Ba'athist regime tried to stop this march. Um, there was uh, some skirmishing, uh, some people badly damaged and thrown in, uh, some people thrown in jail and so on and so forth. And there was a debate inside of the Ba'ath party as to how to deal with the situation. Saddam, not then the leader of Iraq, but the leader of the security forces, championed the wing that said there should be a thoroughgoing, tough policy towards the Shiite, uh, Shiite uh, religious leaders. And this Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr was arrested. He was released, but the outbreak of the Iranian revolution of 1978-79 terrified the Iraqis. Sadr and his sister were arrested again in 1980. They were offered some compromises that they could make uh, showing their deference to the government and re refused, and both were executed brutally, in fact, by the government in, 19, in April uh, 8th of 1980. Now, here I must mention something that people in this country don't come to terms with, and that is that the Iran-Iraq war, which began about this time, had enormous casualties from the point of view of the populations of those two countries. It's usually put at a million people. Uh, proportions of killed, therefore, are something like 300 to 400,000. It was an enormous strain on the economies of those countries. Iraq, in fact, imported all of it, or much of its agricultural labor. And, in, and it was in a strong impetus to nationalist differences of feelings, some of which have never died down. There was, of course, a rising of the Shiites, the Twelver Shiites, in the south in 1991. There was also Kurdish rising at the same time. In fact, it said that the majority of provinces in Iraq were revolt against, in revolt against Saddam Hussein. The United States, famously having encouraged these, uh, arising, uh, these risings and uh, failing to support them, um, uh, uh, was blamed in a very, ba very uh, severely by the Shiites in the south for leaving them in the lurch. The rising was indeed put down by Saddam and uh, the rate at which Shiite leaders were killed speeded up considerably in the following decade. Interestingly, in this rising, the pictures that were shown everywhere were pictures of Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr, if you look back at the photographs of uh, the rising in southern Iraq. After the revolt was put down, the Iraqi government asked the Khalidar, who um, uh, was a, fig a figure who dated back, again, in an inherited honor, they dated back to Ottoman times to give a list of uh, appropriate candidates uh, for the government to recognize as leaders of the clergy. Now, this is very interesting. The Ottoman government was a Sunni government. As you know, the Ottoman government last, uh, has been in Iraq from the 17th century right up till 1917 or 1918, depending on what part of Iraq. Um, they had known that there was a big Shiite community. They, they negotiated with them at arm's length, usually at arm's length, and partly through this official called Kelidar, the holder of the keys, the keys to the shrine. This figure was supposed to consult with the Shiite clergy as to who their actual leading clergymen were. Um, and uh, in fact, this was the usual process in Ottoman times and in subsequent times in Iraq. But at this particular point after the revolt in 1991, the Khalidar was afraid and he actually, at the government's behest, gave a list of the most pliant clergymen among the Shiites. 
This list included a distant cousin of Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, Muhammad Sadiq al-Sadr. Let's call him the Sadr too. <laughs> it's too confusing to say his whole name every time. A strongly Arab figure, which was uh, attractive to the uh, uh, the uh, Baathist regime, who said that classes should be not should not be taught in Persian, and took a strongly, so to speak, Arab view of Shiite learning. This man is a very interesting man, and not a man of great learning, but something of a mystic and ascetic. He was definitely an ascetic. And he had an enormous success in his the sort of pastoral role as a clergyman. He was very concerned for the Shiite poor, very concerned for Shiite public religious practices. And indeed, his insistence on Shiite public religious practices, including the right to lead the Friday prayer and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, was uh, what brought him to grief. He, this offended the Iraqi government, and the Baathists uh, had him arrested in 1999. Saddam had, in fact, Mohammed Sadr and his sons, uh, all his sons except Sadr III, Muqtada Sadr, killed. Uh, this was a very traumatic event for the uh, Iraqi Shiites. They had thought that at least a leader who was, so to speak, a religious and pastoral and had sort of ritual demands, but was not really pushing a, a program. It was later said by the government, of course, he was pushing a, a, a program, but it was not uh, at least overtly pushing any kind of political program. That even such a figure should be killed was um, seemed to them the uh, most bitter uh, uh, result of tyranny that they lived under. Uh, the interesting thing is that the set of collectors of the tithes or religious taxes that had worked for Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr went into the pay and were much enlarged by this uh, Sadr too. And the, therefore an apparatus remained of clergymen who had collected religious taxes for Sadr I and Sadr II. Uh, and this apparatus is immensely important to the rise of Sadr III. Now, before we come to Sadr III, let me explain that this Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr, uh, Sadr I, had a class, a sort of advanced class in jurisprudence. Um, I, I, some of you um, may know I just translated and common, half translation, half commentary on his uh, introduction to jurisprudence, his book, uh, Lessons in Islamic Jurisprudence. This Sadr uh, one had a class, in advanced class in jurisprudence, which was very important for the formation of later Iraqi leaders. One of these, uh, one of his star pupils was in fact the son of the Hakim I mentioned before. I'm sorry these people are not named Charles and, and Philip, but <laughs> it's, it's a bit confusing, but never mind. It, it all makes sense if you, <laughs> if you, um, uh, if you listen carefully. This Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim was one of the best pupils in the class, but he was also a person of practical experience. And after receiving uh, his sort of a degree as a, uh, a doctor of the law, he became the head of uh, the, um, the uh, so to speak, uh, uh, office for public affairs, including the collection of these religious taxes for Sadr one. The other two pupils are a man named Mahmoud Hashim uh, Shahrudi, or Shahrudi, one would say in Persian. Uh, in spite of his Persian last name, a family that had lived for many generations in Iraq. And another person named Qazim al-Hari, al-Qazim al-Hari. Incidentally, notice that these three people are Arab. In fact, um, the Sadr, Muhammad Bakr Sadr's p 
pupils were predominantly Arabs, although there were important Iranian students. And um, this has something to do with a Sadrist strain being more nationalistic and Arab. After the death of, of Sadr I, uh, and indeed the death of Sadr II, um, many of the clergymen went into exile. Many had, were killed, of course, but some managed to escape in the early 90s, the late 80s, the early 90s, the late 90s, and so on and so forth. In exile, there was considerable infighting among them. In fact, when I asked a clergyman friend what happened to a certain Iraqi clergyman named Asifi, um, who was an Iraqi, uh, he said, uh, alas, he was in bad health because he had been stabbed in Qom, the Persian holy city. And I said, stabbed? And he said, yeah, these Iraqi mullahs are tough. And I don't know what to say. It's, Iranian mullahs are tough, but they don't stab each other. Anyway, there was a lot of infighting among the Iraqi mullahs in exile. Some of them went into exile in places other than Iran. The most important of these was Abdul Majid Khoi, who went to London. He in London, perhaps from the atmosphere, perhaps from the court, courting he received from uh, Western governments, perhaps from conviction, became uh, a liberal, let's say. And he uh, returned to Iraq in May, um, May of this year, it's amazing how much has happened, May of this year, expecting to play a large role in, uh, among the Shiite leaders. He was killed uh, almost uh, days after arriving and almost certainly by Muqtada Sadr, Sadr III, um, the son of Sadr II and the son-in-law of Sadr I because Sadr I married his, uh, Sadr I's daughters were married to the sons of Sadr II. This Muqtada Sadr was a figure only at most 30 years old, some people say he's younger than that, a person of no standing in religious learning, but nevertheless with some of the kind of aura of sanctity that belonged to the Sadr family. In May, later in May, Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim returned from Iran. People expected him to have a sort of pro-Iranian message. Uh, and indeed, Khamenei, the sort of hardline president of Iran, saw him off, they embraced, and so on and so forth. But in fact, from the minute he landed in Iraq, he had a liberal message. He said, you know, we want uh, Islamic values, but we want uh, liberal democratic government. And he seemed like a good replacement for this Khoi who had been killed. Then, as many of you will know, on August 24th, a truck bomb um, blew him up. Uh, <clears throat> who was behind this assassination is extremely hard to know. But it was, of course, beneficial, whoever did it, for Sadr III. Sadr III had stuck it out in Iraq. He took the point of view that all the mullahs who had gone into exile were cowards and that uh, he was the true Arab Iraqi Shi'i leader, even though he was a person of no religious, no standing in religion or in, in religious learning. This left a position open, uh, and indeed, Muhammad Bakr al-Sadr had been in Iran, the head of an organization called Skiri, Supreme Council for the Islamic Revolution in Iraq, and he had a younger brother who had been deputy president, but again was a man who wore a turban but had no particular religious learning. Uh, this Abdulaziz al-Hakim is now a member, uh, is in fact the leader of what is left of the Hakim faction, faction and is a member of the governing council. Meanwhile, back in, <laughs> in Najaf, in the center of learning, the Hauza or Jose, leadership had continued in a more traditional way. That is, 
in uh, Sayyid Muhammad Ali Sistani in, had succeeded Abul Qasim Khoi when he died in 1992. In the seminaries itself, there was a clear leader. And indeed, many of the tribes recognized this leader, as did many of the Shiites abroad. This is extremely important. Of course, people estimate something like 15% of the uh, Shiites of South Asia, are, of the Muslims of South Asia are Shiites, many Shiites in the Persian Gulf. And they all look to this figure. But the Iraqi community was divided because the Sadr line of succession had been a separate, had created a separate apparatus for collecting taxes and so on and so forth from this traditional leadership that existed by the most learned person in the view of the seminarians. Now, when asked about the Constitution, this Sistani seems to support a view, and does seem, in fact, to support a view, which is more or less, uh, more or less compatible with the views of a uh, liberal uh, elected government. Um, he has, I have here uh, a decree of his uh, put out almost exactly a month ago, the 27th of Shaban, um, in which he says um, a, a constitution should be made by people, uh, electors chosen from among the Iraqi people. Uh, it is certain that it will have Islamic values, but it will be democratic and allow privileges uh, to minorities. Um, uh, there is an urgent need I just read, this is a further interesting point in, in his, uh, his decree, a recent decree. There is an urgent need uh, that uh, the work of, the, of uh, electing uh, the constituent assembly be done under the supervision of the United Nations and not the occupying powers. The word occupying is very clearly there. <laughs> And, 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 and an interesting part of, part of this. Okay, so we end, up, we end up with a Shiite community that is in fact very severely divided. On the one hand, we have, uh, so to speak, the tribesmen of the south, uh, of course overwhelmingly settled, um, who look to the traditional leader of the seminaries, and this, of course, is Sistani. We have the urban poor in Baghdad, and in other places, but principally in Baghdad, in which the tribal structure has somewhat broken down. This famous suburb of Baghdad, now called Sadr City, and by the way, nobody will tell you which Sadr it's named after. <laughs> this, this suburb of uh, Baghdad, called Sadr City, uh, is a place in which there's, yes, many people know their tribal genealogies, they sometimes live near to kinsmen, but to some extent that leadership has broken down. And the network set up by um, Sadr II, who was, as I say, the pastoral leader, uh, survives there, is very strong, and is, looks to Sadr III for its inspiration. The, I should say this urban poor in other places are sort of split between those who look to, uh, to Sadr III and those who, uh, who look to the traditional leadership among the clergymen. Um, this Muqtada Sadr, Sadr III, has maintained an extremely aggressive attitude. He says he wants real Islamic government, he wants real Shiite government. Um, uh, he uh, has uh, said that um, he, uh, he, he called for the formation of a million-man army of the Messiah, Jaish al-Mahdi, and indeed some uh, thousands, I don't think quite a million, people turned out at one Friday prayer all dressed in their burial shrouds indicating their willingness to serve in the army of the Mahdi. Uh, then when the Americans said if anybody appeared with weapons as well as uh, 
as well as burial, <laughs> burial shrouds, they would take action. He announced that it was an unarmed army. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> Sadr III is, uh, uh, is taking the pose of the true champion of Shiites, the true champion of the Arabs among the Shiites, and he is using a network which he inherited to some extent from his father-in-law and his father, Sadr I and Sadr II. He still has, as Sadr I had, the pulpit in Kufa. This sounds like nothing, but this is in fact, of course, the town in which Ali, the giant figure of Shiism, used to preach, the mimbar of, the, of uh, Ali. And he preaches there uh, on most Fridays, and in fact, his lectures, his, uh, his sermons are circulated throughout Iraq and create something of a sensation. Others, of course, are shocked by his ignorance, by his attacks on Sistani. He tried to, in fact, evict Sistani from Iraq. Um, his probable implication in the killing of Khoi. Recently, there was a gun battle in Kazimain, uh, in which followers of Sadr III tried and failed to take over the shrine in Kazimain from followers of Sistani. There are, of course, many other groups. There is the merchant elite of Basra, which is, has always been directed towards the Indian Ocean and somewhat different in its composition, and the old Shiite merchant elite of Baghdad, from which such figures as Ahmad Chalabi come. There are, of course, and this seems to be forgotten by everybody, there are still many Iraqi Shiites, or people who feel some vague uh, allegiance to Shiism, who are former communists, or who were collaborators with the Ba'ath Party, and who actually don't care what the clergy thinks in any way whatsoever. What can we anticipate? Well, I can't, I can only give vague ideas. First, I can, I can say that until Saddam is captured, the Shiites are going to be extremely nervous. They think, perhaps with reason, that the Americans will withdraw and that the Ba'athists will come back. Now, I, I say you have to realize the extent of slaughter, really, among the Shiite clergy by Saddam to, to, to picture this. I mentioned that 72 members of the, the Hakim family were killed by Saddam, and then somebody else killed uh, Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim uh, after, after Saddam was overthrown. So the capture of Saddam is for the Shiites a, a absolutely essential uh, prerequisite for any kind of stability. Second, I think that the, uh, the traditional Shiite clerical leadership, and this is Sistani, will take on power insofar as its ability to regain the networks of tax collection, religious taxes, are regained. Um, this, of course, is a, an individual dis, uh, decision, but I think that employed people will, are more likely to give their taxes to people like Sistani, and therefore the creation of, an, of a society in which the majority of people have jobs is extremely important to the restoration of the position of the traditional clergy. And in the meantime, Sadr III uh, uses these unhappy people who are unemployed as his uh, pseudo-army. There is also, I should say, a crisis inside of the clergy, clerical community because so many clergymen have killed off, been killed off that there's actually a paucity of elderly senior clergymen <laughs> This, this uh, um, Shiite clergymen seem to live forever. If someday, if they publish diet and exercise book, we'll all buy it because they all live into their 90s and so on and so forth. But in the meantime, 
um, the, so many people have been killed by Saddam that the, the ranks of the upper clergy are much depleted. And if people like Sistani are killed, there really are not that many people who can replace them. Uh, and third, I think it's fairly clear now that the hysteria about Iranian domination through the Iranian clergy and through Iranian Shiite connections over the, the Shiites of southern Iraq is really just hysteria. It, it, well, it, anyway, it's overrated. Uh, the Arabness of the Iraqi clergy is very strong. And um, in fact, the, uh, the Iranianness of the Iranian clergy is very strong. I mentioned to you that the two, two of the leading, uh, 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 two of the leadings, the two leading students, in fact, of Sadr one was a, was a man named Qasim Ha'iri. He is living in Qom. He tried to back Sadr three for a while. In fact, he did very mischievously. And then, because of his connections with the Sadr family and other things, and then he even backed away from Sadr III as, as a too, too much of a thug. Um, but he is clearly seen by the Iranians as an Iraqi. And the other leading uh, uh, pupil of Mohammed Bakr Sadr, Sadr I, was this Shahrudi who was made head of the Iranian judiciary and who is seen by the Iranians overwhelmingly as an outsider, an Iraqi who does not belong in their judicial system. So in fact, one result of this experimental experiment in Shiite internationalism is that it may work among the clergy, but it does not work among the majority of the Shiites of these communities in which nationalism remains quite strong. I'll stop at that point and thank and welcome your questions. I feel the questions for now. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm to, uh, ask you about the relationship between Wah oh, great. Um, uh, between Wahhabism and uh, the Shias in uh, southern Iraq. Uh, obviously, they have been um, enemies for quite a while. As we know, the House of Saud is quite keen about. Um, um, marketing their agenda, whether it's political, social, financial, through Wahhabism. And that was the case with uh, Abdulaziz uh, Ibn Saud, the uh, grandfather or the father of the uh, present king in Saudi. Do you think there might be a conflict uh, down the line uh, between the Shias in southern Iraq and their neighbors, specifically in Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, where a good percentage of the population, 60% is Shia, especially in Bahrain, simply because Bahrain was influenced at some point in time by Shia, uh, Iranian Shias, than by um, Arab Shias. Uh, question number two, is Sadr is the same as Sadr, Musa Sadr in Lebanon? Is it the same from the Sadr family? Because it sounded like you have an L. Sa, Alef, Sa, Dara, or is it the same uh, family? Dal Ra, and they're both okay. the same family. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, the uh, it's interesting, uh, as you uh, I'm, I'm sure know. In 1806 and 1810, the Wahhabis invaded um, southern Iraq, and uh, on one t on one occasion they actually raised the shrine town of Najaf. <laughs> uh, Pardon? A big mistake? Yeah, it was probably a big mistake. Uh, it, it was after that, in fact, in partly in result of that, but also of earlier events, that the uh, uh, sort of Legion Shiite clergyman from Iraq sent, sent uh, missionaries to the tribes because they wanted a sort of to create a series of uh, Arab tribes who supported Shiites. And were successful. These tribes may have been diffusely Shiite, but they were made more specifically Shiite. And in fact, somehow or another, the chiefs of these tribes all end up being 
descendants of Ali, uh, Sharifs, and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, uh, the, the enmity is, of course, deep. And uh, the Iraqi Shiites I've been able to ask about the, um, who killed Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim are overwhelming of the opinion that it was Wahhabis. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. Why would the Wahhabis kill Muhammad Bakr al-Hakim? But it does tell you that, that the fear of them is, is extremely strong. Now, future conflicts in the Gulf, it's quite true that a Shiite Iraq uh, might uh, push for rights for Shiite minorities, and that would be a problem in the, in the Gulf. But um, uh, the, any future of Iraq, even if it splits into three parts, will include a large Shiite, Shiite group in the, sun, the south of Iraq pressing for the interests of Shiites. I don't, I really don't know. I, I, I mean, it, certainly they have reason to be anxious. Uh, they were, of course, terribly anxious about Iran for a long time. The Gulf Cooperation Council was to some extent formed out of anxiety about Iran. Uh, but I, 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 I don't know how it will configure itself. I suppose a lot of it has to do with how Iraqi government configures itself. Uh, itself. Yes, please. Thank you. Please present present a couple of scenarios. Um, well. The, the sort of variables seem to be um, the Kurdish view of federalism is that the Kurds are semi-autonomous and the rest do whatever they do. Uh, and um, that's a reasonable, reasonable view of federalism, but I'm not sure it leaves a united Iraq. And that's a real problem because in the Kurdish areas, uh, partly, of course, thanks to the flyover zone of the United States, the education has been conducted in Kurdish and so on and so forth. And they really have now, fair, some, of the, some of the area have a fairly long experience of having, not knowing Arabic and not having sort of direct relations with the government in Baghdad. So uh, that's a big problem. Uh, some people have said that Iraq should be divided into many little electrical, elect, electoral uh, districts and that these little electoral districts should uh, will somehow balance each other out. Other people have said uh, that the f fighting among the Shiites mean that different, uh, different parties in other parts of the country will have friends. And this is absolutely true. Barzani and Talabani, the two great uh, Kurdish leaders, have come down and courted different Shiite leaders. So there is... Uh, between the Shiites and the Kurds, there is some kind of, I don't know what to say, uh, some kind of chance of, of uh, a federalism in which the Kurds stay in. The Sunni area, as we see, is in total revolt, or not in total revolt, but <laughs> it's, uh, it has the most to lose from whatever is formed afterwards. My feeling is that, in fact, one may have to have an upper chamber which has only the power maybe to delay laws for a year as the House of Lords used to have or something like that, which uh, is uh, less, which is in fact uh, appointed at, at the beginning, uh, that somehow is not clearly anything, that is Shiite, Kurdish, etc., etc., that is not dominated by any group, and then I have a lower elected assembly uh, chamber which has the real legislative power. Um, otherwise, it's going to be very hard for people to, to let go. Um, but I mean, the, the, there are, if you look at, uh, everybody has a plan for the future of Iraq except the United States government. Uh, if you look, <laughs> if you, if uh, Council on Foreign Relations, if you look at the website, they have a very elaborate plan. And uh, several of the foundations, I believe, um, uh, the Carnegie Foundation has a plan and so on and so forth. Uh, the real question is how to get a, a plan that uh, keeps Iraq, uh, you know, uh, keeps Iraq together and somehow or another gets the, the Sunni Arabs off, 
the, I mean, the, get, somehow removes them from uh, the, their feeling that they lose everything, no matter what the outcome is. Um, moves them from that feeling, anyway. Uh, uh, just one up here in front, and then I'll... Uh, Iraqi Ayatollahs have always been arrayed along a political spectrum from more yeah. the more active to the more passive. Now, of course, a lot of that's going to be determined by their personal views, mm -hmm. but how much of that is determined by uh, the interests of their constituency? I'm sure that, uh, or their followers, yeah. um, especially since so much of their funding is coming directly from their followers. Right. Well... I think I think that's a very good question. I think that um, the, the the important thing is uh, I think one important thing is to realize that Iraqi Shiites gave into the idea of of the guardianship of the jurists, Wilayat al-Faqih or Velayat al-Faqih, only at the last moment when the Iranian Revolution succeeded. Um, Mohammed Bakr al-Sadr won. <laughs> Uh, had a believed in Islamic government, but he didn't believe in this guardianship of the jurists. Then at the last moment when Khomeini succeeded, he wrote a book in which he did a fast turnaround. And he, the famous thing is he told his, his followers, Dhubu, melt into the trend of Khomeini and so on and so forth. But, um, and people say that Muqtada Sadr is, is a Khomeinist. I'm not so sure he is. I don't know. I think he's just a thug. But, uh, uh, I, I think that that uh, it's true that that a lot of the, uh, the, the that Muqtada Sadr is drawing his support uh, from uh, uh, a nationalist Arab, I mean Arab and nationalist Iraqi Shiite group, which is a very it's a big reality in Iraq. Uh, it may not be the most important. Sistani is growing, getting his uh, strength and contributions from a group who has a, a, a slightly more liberal and non-confrontational view of politics. I suppose that if the Iraqi masses become overwhelmingly confrontational with the American authorities, then even Sistani will move over to confrontational pose. Yes, that's perfectly possible. It's not, it's not happened yet, but the clock is ticking. The Americans really have got to do something. Uh, uh, soon. <laughs> anyway, yes, there's a question over here. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what sorts of steps the Sistani family can take, whether theologically or politically, in order to uh, regain their strength within a larger Shia, within the larger Shia uh, polity, uh, masses. Uh, what, and what kind of reaction will steps that they take uh, have on the Southern family or Southern three uh, in terms of violent reactions and whether they'll be able to to take step, some of these practical step, steps. Steps the Southern family can take or that the American... Steps the Sistani family can take to reassert their, their preeminence in the in the Shia community. Well, you see, the this Muqtada Sadr, the Sadr III, Sag Sadr, uh, he, uh, he's, I, I don't know, he's taking the... He's almost the only member of the family left of any importance. And... He's taking the uh, confrontational route. Uh, I don't, uh, the question, I, I think, since he's, is really what the other families who uh, are somewhere in between uh, the Hakims and the Bahrul Alums and so on and so forth, what can they do to reassert themselves? I mean, because we see what is the only one Sadr really in the playing field now. We know what he's doing. What can the other families do to reassert themselves? And uh, uh, some of it will involve a, a, an attempt to reacquire the loyalty of these clergymen, these middle-ranking clergymen who, have, uh, who are loyal. They're, they're called the Sadriun, Sadriun, they're who follow Sadr, and, um, or Sadr, however you want me to pronounce it. Um, I don't know, it's... It, it's uh, 
it's a very fluid situation. I, I, I don't know. I really, I really think the, uh, if the Americans, and I have no idea what they're doing, if the Americans are not making it possible for contributions to flow to, uh, to the traditional families other than Sadr three, they're fools. <laughs> they, they just may be doing so because they, the, the embargo is still on. It's it, it, movement of money into Iraq is hard, and so on and so forth. Hi. Um, if the Dawa is still uh, exists in some form as a liberal movement, and there are many. Um, Shias who are sophisticated and non-secular, is there any link of them with any of the Sunnis that could be, uh, you know, what is the relationship with yeah. this sort the of Dawah secular? The Dawah party, two factions of the Dawah party survive. And um, one of them, they don't have strong attachments to clergymen anymore. That's the interesting thing. They, they used to look to Muhammad Bakr Sadr, Sadr one as their kind of spiritual leader. And uh, although how close his ties with their, him, them were is a very debated point. But in any case, they don't have ties with clergymen anymore. Um, there are towns like Nasriya where they're supposed to be very strong. Uh, but, you know, not being on the ground, I just don't know what that means. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. Um, Nasiriya seemed one of the more peaceful towns because the chief clergyman, as, as, uh, uh, a Mohammed Nasiri, appropriately enough, a Mohammed Nasiri uh, agreed with the Americans that his uh, people should patrol with the Americans and they... It seemed that this top Shiite clergyman and the, but then obviously there were other people there because, uh, one week ago the Carabinieri, as you know, in Nasiriya were blown up in large number. So, um, I don't really know what the Dawah is doing. I really don't know. I know they're on the scene. I know they're very much a minority, but they're very, they're present and they, they represent a faction of Shiites who, who uh, do not look to clergymen anymore. I'm sorry, that's a rather uninformative answer, but it's the best I can do. The relations with Sunnis are a complicated question. Some Shiite groups uh, have reached out to Sunnis, including Muqtada Sadr, uh, and uh, this, um, there has been some coordination in Baghdad itself. I mean, the strange thing is, you know, like a lot of these countries, there's a, a, a giant city at the, and sort of what happens in the giant city more or less determines the fate of the nation. And so Baghdad has been very peculiar in that way. And yes, uh, there have been, there has been some relation between the Dawah party and there has been some relation between Muqtada Sadr, the Sadr three and, and the uh, Sunni, uh, Sunni elements that dislike dislike the Americans. Uh, and, uh, but how far the cooperation has gone, I don't know. I mean, they have had, uh, on the same Friday prayers, they have had demonstrations in both Sunni and Shi'i uh, areas uh, to in Baghdad to demonstrate some kind of solidarity against Americans. And we have time for one last question. Okay. Okay. Yes. I think uh, Ahmad Chalabi is the most interesting person, but, uh, and I mean it because I know him personally, but uh, his support in Iraq is, is virtually non existent. It, it was a a fantasy of some people that uh, he, uh, he, since he came from Iraqi Shiite family uh, in Baghdad, that he could somehow walk into Iraq and say, hi, I'm your Shiite conqueror. 
or liberator, rather. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Gave the wrong word. Shiite liberator. Uh, and uh, uh, he, I think Ahmed told me that he had not been back to Iraq since 1968 uh, when he uh, uh, visited after he graduated from MIT or something. And so, uh, you know, it's... Um, um, I don't know what to say. It's a fantasy on part of a few uh, most deluded people in the American government that he uh, speaks for the Shiites of Iraq. He speaks for almost nobody. Okay. On that note, thanks so very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.